listening to the Taming Hinges podcast. Conversations about self-awareness and mental health. We talk about anything and everything on the podcast. Real experiences, real life. Come get triggered. Welcome to another episode of the Taming Hindrances podcast. My name's Phil. I'm the host and creator of the podcast. And I have another episode for you. And that episode is a little of a follow-up to the previous, but uh, starting off on a little bit of a different tangent, a little bit of a different path. So ever since episode 31, The Sequitur, we've talked about chaos, creation, order, destruction, and the cycles in which those all entail. And this is an endeavor that I've taken on to better understand what exactly is spirituality. What, what is this thing known as spirituality? What does it mean to be spiritual? What type of feelings go along with it is what I started to discuss in the cycles episode. And I thought about it quite a bit and realized there are some feelings that go away with it, go, go along with spirituality or other, you know, whatever descriptive term you want to use at this point. And we talk about them. We do. We, they, they show up in our language. And as you know, I like to look at language to better understand things. So the language I want to look at today is the word intuition. And intuition gets thrown around a lot. It gets thrown around as a, a feeling, an action, um, all sorts of different met metrics that you can measure to say like, oh, that was intuition. So as always, let's start off with, you know, Merriam-Webster's dictionary. We'll go over the definition here. The definition for Merriam-Webster's, the noun intuition is the power or faculty of attaining to direct knowledge or cognition without evident rational thought and inference. Let's, let's, let's go with one of the simpler ones. Immediate apprehension or cognition. Okay. That's pretty simplified knowledge or conviction gained by intuition. Great. Uh, and then the second one here, the, that's all, that was a, B and C of, of the first definition. Then second definition is quick and ready insight. I'm going to stick with the second version here first, and then maybe we'll jump back to the first um, definition, but we'll stick with that second one, quick and ready insight. I think that is a great definition of the feeling that goes along with intuition, because there is a little bit of a feeling there. Some people get the goosebumps on their skin, you know, get the the erector pili muscles. That's what uh, goosebumps is for those who don't know. In your skin, you have these little erector pili muscles that control your hair follicles, and when those erector pili muscles uh, contract, you get that kind of goose skin or goosebump feeling. So when there's a little erector pili muscles or doing their little contraction things and you get that kind of that chill, you know, maybe goes up your spine a little bit or flushes down or up your arms. Some people get it down their legs. I particularly get it in the arms a lot. That's a feeling that goes along with this thing we call intuition. And in some cases, I think there's also action. Action can be involved. That's why I like quick and ready insight. Quick and ready insight is a great definition for what I consider instincts. And no, they are not specifically the same thing, but someone like a parent. I'm not a parent myself, but we always talk about, you know, 
mom sense, dad sense, mama bears, you know, those type of things, you know, the mama bear sense where she, like a mom just knows like that kid's about to do something. It's going to hurt them. I probably should go stop them from doing that. Or dad sees the swing going a little crooked and the kid's going to fall off and they catch the kid. Like th- those type of things. That's an instinctual nature, but I believe there's a bit of intuition to it. And that intuition going with the definition of quick and ready insight is it's not exactly learned it. It's almost, it's almost other. And that's why I think it's in part somewhere in the realm of spirituality. I believe spirituality can have something to do with that imparting of an intuitive feeling or the feeling of intuition and what that might feel like. I've experienced it personally, having given some speeches in, uh, in churches that it's like, it's almost like a communal feeling in a church setting um, that I think some people kind of, when they gather in that setting, they kind of feel all together as one. Or, you know, some people might say they get it at a sports match, that they feel that intuition of this game is going to, this game is going to go into overtime or, oh, the underdog is about to come back. Or it's just a, it's a general feeling you get along the lines of, of quick and ready insight. It's just an insight you have just in a, like, oh, you know what? I'm, I might want to, I might want to stick around for this. Something, something's going to happen. Something's about to happen. I might want to stick around for it. So where does that come from is really the question to ask at this point, right? Where does that type of feeling come from? What starts it? Well, for the human body, as far as the human body is concerned, those erector pili muscles, that's all part of the nervous system, specifically your vagus nervous system. And the vagus nervous system is an interesting part of the central nervous system. I don't think I'll go into great depth on it, but it's a giant antenna in the body. Um, I'm fortunate enough to have been to uh, the Mutter Museum in Philadelphia and seen the exhibit they had. I'm, I'm sure you could find pictures online or I'm sure there's just pictures online in general, but it was very interesting seeing it in person. Um, the whole nervous system of the body without anything else, just the nerves. They had a, an exhibit where it was the whole physical body just of the nervous system. And it's extraordinary. The length from, you know, you're, you don't, you know, no matter how tall you are, take a look at the ground, stand straight up and look at the ground and realize how far away that actually is. And then imagine all of these nerve endings that go from your skull all the way down to your feet. And they branch out in all sorts of different directions. And one of those systems, part of the central nervous system, you know, we have the spinal column and all that, is this thing known as the vagus nervous system. And the vagus nervous system is the one that like branches out everywhere. In fact, from the massage therapy standpoint, the vagus nervous system is probably what we most often deal with when we're doing anything involving the fascial system. Most of the vagus nervous system innervations happen somewhere inside of that fascial network. And often if there's a sensation um, known as a trigger point, so not to get too in depth here, but what you would commonly refer to as a knot, you know, it's like, oh, I got a muscle knot. Those are what's known as adhesions. Adhesions are when the sarcomeres of a muscle lose their nice slidey, you know, covering and they actually adhere to one another or they might adhere to a another 
another muscle. They might adhere to its own muscle belly group. It might adhere to part of the fascial system. It just adheres to something else. So we call them adhesions. And we're often trying to break up those adhesions, just like you say, break up a knot. It's the vocabulary is the same thing. It's a knot and an adhesion, but adhesion is more of the, the medical term for it because it's literally the sarcomeres of the muscle adhesing to something usually to another sarcomere. So that tends to bind itself around a nerve ending. And when that happens, you get something known as a trigger point. So if anyone's who've ever had, has had, you know, a run in with a physical therapist or a chiropractor or a massage therapist and heard the word trigger point, a trigger point is when a nerve ending gets stuck in the belly or satellite site of the muscle. Satellite site, so belly is the muscle, is the very center of the muscle. Satellite is the very ends of the muscle. Somewhere in between there. But it's when those sarcomeres actually bind around and adhese around a nerve ending. So the nerve ending gets stuck. When you push on those, you get something known as referred pain. So I might push on your neck and you say, oh, I feel that in the front of my face. I feel that in you know my eyebrow. That's what's known as a trigger point. Or, you know, we Now there's mapping and everything. There's a bunch of stuff you can do on where those referred pain sections are, what kind of trigger points, you know, in certain muscles referred, which way. But typically when we get something like that, it's known as a trigger point and it has this thing known as referred pain. And that referred pain system is typically, not all the time, but typically revolved around a vagus nervous system nerve ending that's stuck or being acted upon. I would argue that some part of sciatic pain has to do with entrapment. No, I can't say entrapment because that's a whole different setup, but some sort of issue with the muscles acting upon or the fascia acting upon the vagus nervous system. That's that referred pain we get down the leg. And yeah, it could just be one of the 13 cranial nerves. There's a whole mess of nerve endings, but I digress. Going back to, you know, being at the Mutter Museum and seeing this, if you're not squeamish, please look it up. It's fascinating. If you just look at just the map without anything else, if you can find it, it's, it's a, just a fascinating picture to see just the nervous system of the body. That's it. Nothing else. Just the nerves from the spinal column branching out down the arm. You can see the physical form of a body just by watching these branches of all these nerve endings coming off and they make up the, you know, physical form. And there's so many and they're long and there's it's just a, just, I don't know how much it is. I, I used to know the number, but I can't remember how much it is now, but it's like, we're talking feet and feet and feet and feet, you know, yards of nerves and nerve endings. So it's, like you're a giant antenna, essentially. When you look at that picture or when you, if you were to see an exhibit like that, it's like you're an upside down antenna. And like one of those old school antennas that, you know, had all the little branches coming off and people used to stick on top of their houses back when, you know, I was a kid. So those antennas that have all these branches, that's what it looks like. It's just like there's a single point at the top. And then all these branches that come off of it. So you're like a giant antenna. Most of that's the vagus nervous system turns you into this giant antenna. So if you're a giant antenna, and I'm just using this as an anecdotal idea, a bit of an analogy, what is that antenna trying to pick up? 
specifically, what does the vagus nervous system do? Well, the vagus nervous system interacts with our autonomous nervous system, and our autonomous nervous system has two sides. Autonomous is just, just think automatic. When you hear autonomous, it's just the automatic nervous system side. So, like, when you go, mmm, cheeseburger, it's the body figures out the rest. That's the automatic part. It's like, okay, they're going to start churning the stomach acid to break down the, you know, burger and all the stuff. And then we got to do peristalsis, which is the squeezing of the intestines to get that to cycle through the intestinal lining. So we can, then we have to do the absorption factor of breaking down the food into amino acids and all these other awesome stuff that our body uses. And then regulating blood sugar while we're doing that we got to keep the heart beating and you know we got to breathe because they're not paying attention to doing that that's all the automatic stuff that's the autonomous nervous system and that has two sides we have the parasympathetic and the sympathetic nervous system the parasympathetic nervous system is the rest digest that's you're like sit on the couch eat a meal take a nap that's the rest digest side that's parasympathetic para just means beside sympathetic is your fight or flight. It's, you know, you're like, oh, something's trying to kill me. I got to run away. That's the sympathetic nervous system side. And both of those have pieces that are part of these branching factors of the vagus nervous system. So the vagus nervous system is constantly taking in information and telling our autonomous nervous system and also um, our other parts of our nervous system, but mostly the autonomous nervous system. And for this example, what's going on around us? So it is just a giant antenna, just picking up information, sending it back to the central nervous system and saying like, hey, hey, uh, it's uh, well, it's a little cold. Um, oh, the air conditioner kicked on, a little chilly. Get the erector pili muscles. But in the same sense, that nervous system also deals with, uh, there's some like extra solar radiation going on today while you're sleeping. And maybe that's, you know, wakes you up a little bit or also, um, that animal over there looks hungry and might try to eat us. Those it's picking up all of this information. And in some cases, I think everyone has, I shouldn't say in some cases, I think everyone has had some run in, in their life where they really felt that Vegas nervous system, give them a, just a huge rush of information and it brings on these reactions it's kind of that fight or flight idea of like, are you going to freeze up or are you going to fight? But also just the little things that might occur. Like if you're cooking dinner and you know, you have a, a knife kind of precariously hanging off the side of the counter that preempted loaded jump back situation where you're like, you're already like, you know, it's kind of there, but you're not really paying attention and you bump it and it goes to fall and you just jump back that kind of feeling that it's it's just like a preloaded precognitive situation and that is by that definition quick and ready insight intuition so that's just kind of the idea of intuition as far as how the vagus nervous system works what other information is it working with that we don't really pay attention to that we don't even really work with more times than not some people may have had the occasions where they see certain numbers. We, we call this numerology, where they're constantly seeing a repeating set of numbers. I have that in my job because there's a clock and every, you know, I'm, I'm massaging people. So 
I have to watch the clock a lot. So I, sometimes I pay attention to it. Sometimes I don't, but there's a whole study called numerology of what it means when we're seeing repeated numbers. But to that extent, in my personal line of work, I'm prone to seeing those numbers because there's a clock. So I, I, you know, three, three, three or whatever you know, the number set is or one, 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 you know, I'm predisposed to see those. It doesn't mean I need to look at the clock exactly when that happens. So is there a intuitive sense that makes me look at the clock at those specific times so that I do see that repeating number? Is there this intuitive sense that gets our, our actual attention? Remember the vagus nervous system is mostly dealing with the autonomous nervous system and that's doing its own thing. We're not paying attention to it. It's, it's part of the body processes we don't pay attention to while we're driving and doing all this other stuff. But when you start to look at, remember last episode we talked about cycles. So when you, we'll upgrade that a little bit too. When you start to see repeating patterns, now patterns are a very important thing. It's probably an episode I need to get into at some port, uh, some part in some way. But those patterns that we see that repeat often I find it a little bit of an interesting idea to look at what's making us notice them. I believe that to be the realm of intuition. And I believe that to be the spiritual or other, whatever, again, name you want to call it senses that we don't really pay attention to. Cause yes, we have our body senses, touch, you know, taste, sight, hearing, smell, you know, we have all those senses. But what's the extrasensory pieces that make us notice things that we just wouldn't even notice? A lot of times we like to say that, oh, that's, you know, lizard brain. It's, it's our survival instinct that, you know, we've evolved to pay attention to things that might hurt us. Or, and yeah, there's, I'm not arguing that that's probably a lot of it. Or I shouldn't say a lot of it. I'm not arguing that's a piece of it. That yes. We're an apex predator. We're really good at picking up motion and comparative to, you know, like tigers. Tigers are amazing at noticing movement, specifically in like tall grasses and, you know, those types of like their, their eyes pick that stuff up. We're pretty good at it too. We can, not only are we apex predators, we also are cognitive in the sense that we understand danger. So we know to look for other predators. So like we can look for a tiger, we can see the tall grass and we know tigers have stripes and we look for color differentiations. So that we go, Oh, that's not the wind. That's a tiger. I got to run away because that tiger is going to eat me because it's a fucking tiger. Um, those types of things are yes, built into our cognitive senses. But what about like the little tiny things? that we don't really pay attention to that end up as these pattern functions. So oftentimes in my line of work, I, you know, I might, I don't talk a lot, but when I do talk to individuals, you know, we get into more deeper conversations because it's already in that, like when you're a massage therapist, it's kind of like a bartender. 
people tend to trust you more because they're in a precarious situation and comparative to yourself. You're also not, they know you're not there. I'm like not there to harm them. I'm not going to share their secrets. It's all very, it's you know, confidentiality and those types of things. But it's, it's more than that. It's to the line of like, there is you, you build a rapport and you build trust. It's a very important part of massage therapy that doesn't get talked about a lot is the trust factor. Find a massage. My advice as far as if you're looking for a massage therapist, find one you can trust and then build that trust with them. It works both ways. There's trust on the therapist side and there's trust on the client side. But anyway, there's conversations I have where like, I'll bring something up and I'll be like, Oh, you know, maybe cause we're trying to figure something out. Like their body has a, an imbalance of some, something's going on. that's causing them pain or discomfort. And we want to figure out what the root cause of it is. Cause that's true medicine true. And I'm not saying I'm a medical practitioner. I'm not, but true medicine is when you find the root cause of something and then can eliminate or treat that root cause, not just throw a bandaid on it and hope it goes away. That's not medicine. True medicine is, is finding the root cause of something. So I'll, I'll ask leading questions to figure out like, okay, what's caught, what repetitive stress actions, you know, was there an injury here in the past? Did you have a surgery? All sorts of stuff like that. Did you bump into the table? You know, like those types of questions to figure out what, what led to this. And in doing that, I often find that, individuals will come back to me and say like, Oh, you know what? You're not the first person to bring that up. Or isn't the first time I've heard that this week or, and you get into these patterns of like, that's reoccurring to you. And I don't often do it, but in my own personal life, I like to look for, I don't often bring the, bring that up to the client cause it's not my business. But when I look at my own personal life, I start to notice more of those patterns. And then what you can do with those. What is the universe trying to tell you? That's kind of what I'm getting into. What is the universe trying to fucking tell you? Cause that's it. If it keeps happening, you got, you got to pay attention to it. Right. And that's patterned repetition. Now that works in both ways. You know, this is the idea of what's known as grooming is pattern repetition to groom someone. So it's good to be aware of what patterns are happening to you. And then when you look at that, you can look towards, is that intuition? Cause then it's from you and universe and that's your own personal conversation. If not, you're probably in a situation you don't want to be in. That's what I'll say on that. But if we look at intuition and we look at that definition of quick and ready insight, right? So quick and ready insight, if we look at our patterns, that's the basis of intuition. So the universe must be trying to fucking tell us something in my personal opinion, but let's step up to that, that first definition and maybe look at this a little bit deeper, the power or faculty of attaining to direct knowledge or cognition without evident rational thought and inference. Let's, let's break that down. That's a lot. The power or faculty of attaining to direct knowledge, instantly knowing, or just instantly understanding without evident rational thought and inference without having to logically reason or try to understand. It's just a direct inference to our cognition of this is this. It's just instant understanding almost. That's really what we're going with it. So the B part there, immediate apprehension or cognition. So apprehension would be, Oh shit, something's trying to eat me. What's going on. 
or cognition. Like, oh, I understand those types of things. So when we look at patterns, as far as intuition goes, it could be that the action or the, the event of intuition is pre-programmed. But that pre-programming could be everything from our genetic nature of our nervous system for fight or flight and parasympathetic, you know, rest, digest, or our lizard brain telling us that there's another predator in the area and we should be careful to pattern inference, which is numerology. I keep seeing the same number set. I keep getting the same answer from people. I keep getting the same reaction from people. I keep getting, I keep hearing the same vocabulary, the same words. I keep seeing the same events or actions. I keep getting the same feeling from a certain action or event situation. That pattern idea could lead, in my personal opinion, to what's known as the subset of an intuitive nature. So can intuition be trained? I believe it can. And I believe this is what someone like a tarot reader or a, a medium or even a spiritual advisor as far as, you know, a religious figure such as a, a pastor or a priest, you know, or a rabbi or, you know, whatever religion and, and title you want to give. That repetitive nature of working in the realm of intuition builds one's intuition. So it's not just intuition is just like instantly a thing and you either have it or you don't. I think it can be trained. It's kind of like, it's kind of like the virtues, uh, specifically patience. One of my favorite sayings is patience may be a virtue, but first it's a learned skill. And you know how I feel about learned things. Repetition is the mother of all skill. Failure is its father. So you must repetitively do it and then fail at it multiple times in order to get better at it. So that comes down to specifically awareness. Now, I know I started off on we're going down this spiritual this spiritual thing and, and delving into what spirituality is and what makes it all. But again, I got to reference back to where we came from. Mental health, self-awareness, those types of things. So in this sense, the awareness, and I define awareness as attention to intentions. If intuition can become a learned skill, but also comes from another other body or comes from a, a different realm than just our physical health system or mental health system, and maybe is actually a part of the spiritual system, and it's a sense of that system, then from that aspect, the attention of intention is the attention to the patterns in which the universe might be telling us what the fuck it is we're supposed to be paying attention to. So intuition almost is the part of intention or attention to it. So it is almost awareness of the other. Intuition is almost the idea of being aware of our other health body, of that, that spiritual health body, the third health body that I, I'm trying to delve into. We've talked about the body, we've talked about the mind, and we continue to do so, but that other other health body, that spiritual, the etheric health body, the, the other health body, the, whatever you want to define it as, intuition is almost the attention 
of its intentions. So it is awareness of it. So to be intuitive would be to be aware of our spiritual nature. And thus it must be a learned skill. It has to be learned because we're not just born with it. Yeah, we're born with the capability of it, but unless someone teaches it to us or we learn it on our own, we'll never understand it. So I believe intuition to be that point, that point of starting to understand how we interact with the universe around us, how we interact with the world around us, how all of these things that we consider in the realm of spirituality, metaphysics, whatever you want to, you know, break out to define this intuition is the awareness of it. It's to be aware of the attention of the intentions of all the deeper stuff in the world, those patterns of like numerology, the, you know, the constant, goosebumpy feeling the that other sense the extrasensory if you will to jump to a, a separate tangent here for a second i've read a bit on um water and i i'm going to share a couple things the best thing to do would be to go to the archive at taminghindrances.com and look at some of the uh some of the things there about water. If you just do a control F, which is how you search a, um, a web page, you can search for water and there's a couple of, um, I always forget his name and I totally, Emoto Masara, Masamoto, Emoto Masamoto. I apologize. I'm butchering the name because I don't remember it quite, but there's an individual, a uh, Japanese individual who like wrote an entire set of books and did a huge set of a huge amount of research on water and the water molecule. Fascinating, fascinating stuff. But also there's uh, Ken Wheeler, who's uh, most prominent on YouTube, and he talks about the water molecule and how the water molecule is essentially, it's a dipole. So that means it's it's like an antenna, It's it, but it's an upside down dipole, kind of like we're an upside down antenna with our vagus nervous system. So dipole is an equilateral triangle, which is what the water molecule is that has a, a two poles, you know, and so we have... H2O, two hydrogens, the hydrogens of a dipole and the oxygen would be the receiver part of the pole. And he also talks about how water is how we pass on genetic memory, which is what makes water so important. And it, it makes the type of water we drink and put in our body super important because we are mostly water. But he theorizes that it's also how species pass on information by genetic sense, which is the realm of the scientific intuition. At a scientific level, the intuition we know as animal instincts. How does the bird know how to fly? How does the, you know, baby giraffe learn how to stand so quickly? Those types of things. And his theorization is, that we pass on genetic information and coding through water, specifically that how it works with a dipole. I'm not doing this any justice because he's a very in-depth speaker. And I urge you to go listen to some of his work. Um, he's a, uh, he has a ton of work. Ken has produced hours upon hours upon hours of stuff on magnetics, water. Uh, he does even like, photography, um, 
cameras and stuff reviews. He's very highly intelligent individual. And he's often going against the normal status quo of science, the academic realm of it. Um, but he backs his stuff up quite a bit and he's got some fascinating ideas and a lot of information to back it up. So I, I urge you to go look at that. So that's my tangent on water, but bringing that back water is in sense that, that realm of intuition, instinctual nature, that dipole. I just wanted to bring it up in the sense of, you know, how it's a dipole antenna we're a vagus nervous system antenna. And if in fact, Ken is correct, um, that would mean water would technically be like a spiritual molecule. And in fact, I, I, I believe he brings it up quite a few times that there is writing in spiritual texts to mention how that idea of water is important from that sense that it is by nature a spiritual molecule because there's a lot of writing on holy waters and all of these things that makes up such an important piece of who we are. If you think about the water intake of a child, it has a lot to do with their heritage, right? It has a lot to do with where they're born, who they are as a people. I think it's also the feeling we get when we're around bodies of water. It's just part of us. I, and it, I believe it's a part of that intuition at an instinctual level. So I'll digress on that for a second. We'll come back to these definitions. So we talked, we broke it down, the power or faculty of attaining the two direct knowledge or cognition without evident rational thought and inference. Part C here, knowledge or conviction gained by intuition. Knowledge or conviction gained by intuition. So this is almost like the next level, right? The, we've, we've stepped up from like just knowing something, just instinctual, that kind of thing to the immediate apprehension or cognition. So immediate like response or understanding. Now it's knowledge or conviction gained by intuition, right? That's part of what I was talking about with the water thing and how it can pass on information. Specifically, I believe it. I, I agree with Ken at a genetical level. But if intuition is the spiritual side of attention to intention, so it's intuition is the attention to the spiritual body, then the knowledge or conviction gained by it is the act of sense. It is intuition is a sense of spirituality. To to instinctually understand or intuitively understand something that is almost intangible or almost ununderstandable. Well, what does that look like? To me, it looks like I get goosebumps and I get this feeling of like, ooh, ooh okay, I'm getting something going on here. And I, I'm, this entire time I've been trying to remember the name of that and I can't. There's a word for uh, the sense you get, the um, that flushing rectal pili feeling uh, you get. Um, ASMR causes it to some people, the, you know, the speaking in the mic thing. That, that ASMR thing 
that's whatever that reaction is. You can look it up, but there is a physical manifestation. There we go. There's a physical manifestation. This is where I'm going with this. There's a physical manifestation of that sense, right? So we get that with taste and sight and hearing. There's a physical calculation that comes with it. That happens through the inference of the mind. And this is where I talk about how as above, so below, but the mind is the translation point between the physical form and the spiritual form and the spiritual form and the physical form. So that would mean the training of intuition, the understanding of it, the paying attention to it, the looking at those patterns, the studying of numerology and studying of other things, or just opening oneself to it is the way in which to train the cognitive perception of it to be more aware of it as intuition is a part of the awareness to spirituality. It's like the first stepping off point. And to take this back into the cycles where we have chaos, creation, order, and destruction, all of them will have their own intuitive sense. People kind of know what the feeling of chaos is. In fact, I believe it to be an overwhelming feeling, and that's why it's garnished or gained a negative connotation in modern society through all of the coercion of language and all those types of things. Chaos gets listed as that, like, oh, it's chaos. It's utter chaos. What do you do? It's confusion. It's. I think that's because chaos is an overwhelming force. If intuition is the understanding or the sense of understanding, spiritual nature, other nature, etheric nature, again, put whatever, whatever word you want on it, then chaos is its the most overwhelming force there could possibly be in, in that regards. So we think of it as negative because it overwhelms our system. It overwhelms our physical body because we don't know what to do with it. Our translation, our consciousness, our mental state doesn't know what to do with all that intuition information. So it, it becomes an overwhelming force and we, we give it that negative connotation. That's where I think chaos gets that connotation from is it's so overwhelming because there's so much information. Chaos is infinite potential and an infinite potential on a spiritual level of a being who is more physical by nature because that's what we're used to dealing with. And it's the most tangible part, intangible versus tangible, subjective versus objective. We end up in that realm of, oh, shit, chaos. Oh, it's all chaos. Because we don't know what to do with all those feelings. We never learned about them. We didn't train them. It's just chaos. So we get overwhelmed by it. Now, creation, on the other hand, is the finality of it. So creation, we're giving things structure. So it feels good. That's a good sense. Oh, that intuitive sense is nice. We like that. We like that creative feeling. We like that because it's singular almost. It's, it's refined. We get rid of all that extra stuff that we don't know what to do with. And we go, Ooh, this is, this is easy. This is law. This is rules. This is rationality. This is creation. This is, we've given something structure that intuitively feels good to us. Or we give it that connotation of feeling good because the intuition the sense of it is finite. It, it's, it's got a, a structure, so it's created. So we, we work with that a little bit better. That's why I think creating something feels better at a spiritual level or is better understood and given a more positive light because of that. It's not as much information. In fact, 
creation is in some sense, as far as the intuition side of things goes, the eliminating of all of the extra noise. We've got, we, we don't need all that. No, no, that's not part of it. We'll get rid of that extra noise. No, 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 no. It's just this. And that's easier to deal with. So we think about cre- creation as a, as a more positive idea. Now, order, order because of its nature, this is why I use the yin-yang symbol to represent order, can go either way. Just like destruction can go either way, but you know, sticking with order right now, order, we like to go in one way or the other. So sometimes we really only pay attention to one side. And that in and of itself is not good or bad. Order is, in my personal opinion, one of the most important intuitive structures or sense of the spiritual we can work with. Because oftentimes we get stuck on one side or the other. And it can be damaging. It can be really rough to only be stuck on one side of the intuitive equation of order. Yin-yang. Specifically because it's how we kind of go about defining things in the subjective and objective, specifically in the subjective, which is why it's part of my exploration in spirituality, is when we give something a subjective nature, when we start asking and answering those why questions, our intuition is kind of filtering some of the the information, just like we did with the creation side. You know, we filter out all the noise. Now we're focused heavily on one side or the other. And because the universe is constantly seeking balance asymmetrically, it's very easy for our intuition to get stuck on one side. So we might get stuck on the side of bad shit happens to me. All this bad shit just keeps happening to me. Fuck the universe, blah, 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 blah. You know, and just, you just get mad and you get angry and you get into that deep, dark, depressive state, like the normal word for depression, not my definition for depression. Because intuitively we get stuck of only sensing one side of that equation. And this is where flexing that intuitive muscle, I believe, could help us in our mental health states. Because if we can stop only seeing one side of that equation, we can, we can open ourselves up to the other side. And it took me a really long time to even understand that in my life, to even understand that that was what was happening. I've defined it in the past in this podcast when, you know, I, when I first started out, the first few episodes when I was like, look at the language you surround yourself with. Look at, you know, the relationships you surround yourself with. How do you build your own reality? That's all the physical side of it. I never understood that there is this spiritual side of it. I never understood that this intuition thing, almost this instincts thing, but specifically on the intuition side, is the sense of it. When you all of you're constantly seeing the patterns, the repetition that you're seeing is always this negative apparatus, this negative feeling, and that's all you feel intuitively. You got to wake up to it. You got to pay attention to it. Because unless you can control that, you're just, you're just, you, you yourself are subjective to it. And if we're talking about the subjectivity, the why questions, let's, let's run this through a a thought experiment. So if all you intuitively see, if all you're stuck on seeing and feeling and understanding is the, the terrible shit that happens to you day by day, week by week, month by month, people just keep, you know, the man just keeping me down. You know, the banks are against me. My job sucks. People hate me. The world's terrible. 
that's all you're going to pick up on. In fact, what you're doing is you're only getting one side of the dipole. Die means to dipole, two poles. You're only getting the negative side of the pole. So your receiver is only picking up the negative side. You're only hearing the negative. You're only feeling the negative. You're only channeling the negative. I'm just you know, throwing some verbiage out that sometimes gets thrown around in metaphysics and spirituality that people scoff at, but there's some reason behind it. Remember, I like language. So if all of you're doing is receiving the negative signals, you're only going to notice the negative stuff. You're never going to notice the other side of that equation. But we have to remember order is two-sided. There's always yin, there's always yang. They cannot be separated. They're always there. They balance themselves asymmetrically, though. So there might only be a little bit of good to find, to receive. But if you're not receiving any, you're not getting the full equation here. There is never, ever an instance in which all of the receptive ability is completely negative, completely bad or gross or horrible. That's just not true. It can't be true because the, the, for as much bad you, as you could possibly absorb on the receiving side, there must be a balance. That's how the universe works. It's a universal law that there must be balance. It is going to be asymmetrical, though. So your daily life might be receiving crap, receiving crap, receiving crap, and then maybe once a month there's that outlet that you have that you know you see as just like this is just my reprieve from the shittiness. But in reality, that's the that's the screaming repetitive thing that the universe is throwing at you of like, hey, hey, that thing that you do that makes you feel better, it helps you get through your week, helps you get through your day, helps you get through your month. That's what you should be paying attention to. That's what you need to start receiving more of. That's your intuition telling you, hey, hey, pay attention over here. So in the sense of order, intuition gets a little messy. It's not as easy as creation. It's not, it's, and it's not as overwhelming as chaos. So we don't just kind of like freak out from it. We can empattern ourselves. We can entrain ourselves into only seeing one side of that order idea. Now, taking that into the destruction side, intuition of destruction has gained or garnered a, a negative sense in today's modern society because destruction is finality and finality feels weird to us. We like clean cut, you know, nice, good wrapped up stories. They feel good, right? A Disney movie. Well, I shouldn't, shouldn't talk about Disney right now. A Pixar movie. Well, maybe even they have some problems. A good story, a good story feels nice when it wraps up. A good romance story that wraps up with an, uh, a beautiful wedding and they, you know, they ride off into the sunset together and they have a, a lovely life. That feels good. It has that intuitive sense of, oh, that feels nice. Because it, it's just, it's nice and wrapped up. But that is destruction. That is an ending, a finite ending. It is a finality but it's a nice one. So we feel good about it. We don't, so we don't see it as a destruction. We're like, Oh, look at this happy life they've created together. Well, in fact, in order for that to have done, they had to destroy their individualities because they needed to learn how to become a partnership. They also needed to destroy their pre marriage romance and that whole, the giddy time that comes to an end. And so there's all these little destructions that go on with all these little cycles. So we don't normally see it as a destruction. 
But a story in sense that goes like that, the final piece of a story, the end of the movie, the end of the book, that is a destruction of sorts. That has a feeling to it. And oftentimes we like the, the nice wrapped up, clean cut, put a bow on it, tie it and send it off. We like that. It feels good. We get a little bit apprehensive towards the, no, it didn't make any sense. How, why would that happen? Or I can't believe that would happen to the character. No, my favorite character died or those pieces because we've, we've attached again to that order. We've attached them one side of the order or the other side of the order. So our intuitive senses are caught up in that. And I'm just using stories here as an analogy because I think we've all felt that at some point. As far as the intuition of destruction, though, it is in some parts our survival instincts. We know our lives would be destroyed if we got into a fight with the, the leopard or, or the tiger. We're going to fuck our day up because they're a giant apex predator that's way stronger than us and they have claws and teeth and all these great things. And unless you have a weapon of your own, you're probably going to lose that fight. So we have a sense of the intuition of destruction, but not the sense of how to apply destruction. That one's often never trained or never understood. This was the realm of Zen Buddhism, spontaneous enlightenment, that achievement where a Zen master would yell a student's name as they were walking out the door or walk up behind a student and clap two blocks of wood together. Um, if you want to look at how the Zen teachers tried to use different methodologies to create spontaneous enlightenment, again, head over to taminghindrances.com's archive and look up Thomas Hoover, who published two books on the matter. One is uh, Zen Culture, but really the one I prefer, um, not, well, yeah, kind of prefer, is the Zen experience. And that's a telling of the history of Zen Buddhism. And it goes through a lot of the Zen masters and the methodologies they use to create what we call spontaneous enlightenment. Now, spontaneous enlightenment is a little bit of a misnomer. Um, it's spontaneous nirvana, technically, and even that's a little bit of a misnomer because technically spontaneous enlightenment is death, but that's not what they were. They weren't trying to kill people. They were trying to shock them out of their, their, their normality, if you will. And that's the realm of destroying one's cyclical or patterned intuition. And this is, this is still a theory I'm a little bit working on, but in my personal opinion, as I say often, because I am not an expert, the act of Zen is a methodology to understand or to feel intuition. It's a training of intuition. That's really what like Satori or Zazen practice is a, it's a hellish practice in some cases. Zazen is not easy. Zazen meditations are not easy. But it's a practice to destroy one's patterned intuition and then to better understand intuition as a practice. In fact, I believe the highest realms of meditation are attempting to do that. And remember, meditation is awareness of breath. Full stop. 
That is the definition of meditation. So any practice in which you are being aware of your breathing, you are meditating. So you can have all sorts of different meditative practices. It can be transcendental meditation practice. It could be whatever you want to call it. Those are just methodologies of meditation. But meditation itself, awareness of breath. Jump all the way back to when I was talking about the autonomous nervous system. Breathing is one of the only times the non-conscious state can take, well, I'm sorry, the conscious state can take over the non-conscious functions. What does that really mean? Taking control of your breathing is one of the only methodologies and ways in which you can take over your autonomous nervous system. In fact, different breathing sets can cause an autonomous nervous system reaction on either the parasympathetic or the sympathetic side. What's that mean? You can directly interact with the vagus nervous system. You can directly interact with your antennae. You can directly tune the receiver. You can, again, directly tune the receiver. That's almost unfathomable to me because that action of being aware of one's breathing is by that definition, intuition. You are tuning in to the universe around you and trying to figure out whatever the fuck it is it's trying to tell you. I've cursed a lot in this episode and I apologize, but I'm, I'm a little, I'm a little, little uppity on this one. So going back to the definitions here, back to that number two definition of Merriam-Webster's quick and ready insight. You can train that. In fact, that is what most meditations are trying to train people to do. It's not to clear your mind. It's not to feel better. Yeah. All of those things come along with it, but the truest practices where we come up with the current methodologies of meditation come from the spiritual practices of meditation in which one was trying to understand the mind of their deities. Again, one was trying to understand the mind of their deities or the spiritual nature of things. This goes all the way back to fasting, to um, lamenting oneself, to exalting oneself, to all of these words we've used in the past to convey a spiritual practice. All of that was training one's intuition, training one's ability to understand what they were feeling from the universe and the world around them that had nothing really to do with just their physical senses and had everything to do with the translation of those senses to what is happening in the other, in the spiritual. What is God trying to tell you? What is what is your deity trying to tell you? What is the universe trying to tell you? Whatever word you want to put on it. Remember, I don't care. That's completely up to you to figure out your belief, your faith. I'm all for it. Figure out what you want to think about for you. Don't let anyone else coerce you into it. Don't want anyone else tell you what you're supposed to or have to believe. It's all, that's all bullshit. If someone's trying to tell you, that means they're not comfortable with their own beliefs. If someone is trying to push their beliefs upon you, not just, I mean, if they want to tell you what they believe in, that's fine. Listen, it's interesting to find out what other people believe, but if they're trying to tell you, you have to believe that, that means they're not comfortable with their own beliefs. It means they don't have to, they don't understand them because they need to validate them through you. This is why I believe the Abrahamic religions 
specifically those on the evangelical side or the radical side are incomplete because the necessity for there to be one God is really the necessity for there to be one prophet. And that argument is just to give validity to the prophet itself and thus give validity to the rationality of action behind that religious organization. The Vatican is a good example of this. The Vatican needs you to believe that Catholicism is the truest version of Christianity in order to give them legitimacy to do all the shit they do. In fact, you can just be Christian and not be Catholic and believe in whatever the fuck you want to believe and not need them to validate you or have, or you validate them. And that's the truer version of belief and faith. I'll digress and get off that soapbox for now, but that's my fair warning on don't ever let someone tell you what you have to believe in. Here's why. Remember, why questions? Oh no, the realm of spirituality. If you are using someone else or someone else is using you to validate a why, they are your deity or you are theirs. And far as I can tell, in a one God situation, that's frowned upon for you to exalt someone over the name of God or the prophet. So even by that definition, a prophet is merely a teacher and teachers are rarely always 100% correct. In fact, the ultimate version of a teacher is one in which helps you understand your mind over theirs. That is what teachers are there to do. To teach. And I'll probably have to get in that in another episode. But for now, jumping back, intuition is the practice of understanding spirituality. So we must train our intuition to better understand our spirituality. And remember, all of those things, chaos, creation, order, destruction, the cycles of spirituality, those all have their own intuitive pieces. They all have their own intuitive feelings. Chaos is overwhelming. Creation feels good because it's it's smaller and easier to, to pick up on. Order, we usually get stuck on one side or the other and sometimes can't see the other side that's in front of us. So we're, there's this action of destruction, which brings us back to chaos overall. But all meditative practices typically come from spiritual practices, which all we're trying to define, again, in my humble opinion, they were trying to define spiritual nature, which is intuition to intuitively know why something happens to answer that. Why question that's what intuition helps us do. Intuition helps us make on the spot calls or on the spot understanding Well, better yet, let's go back to the definitions. On-the-spot immediate apprehension or cognition. On-the-spot knowledge or conviction gained by intuition. On-the-spot knowledge or conviction or immediate apprehension or cognition. Because of an understanding of a why. And that why is the realm of spirituality. It doesn't require a deity at all. If it does, that's fine. I have no problem with that whatsoever. That's up to you to decide. 
That why could be ruled by morals and ethics. But those morals and ethics become an intuition. They become trained at that. So I think in order to better express or better understand our spirituality, we need to look at intuition and what it feels like, what it looks like. We need to look at the effects on the physical because we're better at understanding that than we are the other side of the equation, I think. Now, there are some people out there that I imagine are the other way around. I imagine some of the most intuitive people in the world who are just kind of, quote unquote, born with it, have trouble understanding their bodies and the things that their bodies are telling them comparative to what their intuition is telling them. That they can act intuitively more so than they can act rationally or reasonably. And that makes them not hard to deal with, but maybe hard to understand because we're a society that is now based more on the physical. We're a society that's more based on understanding the discomforts of life, the, the pain of life. And although Gandhi said life is suffering, I'm sorry, Buddha said the life is suffering. The fullest idea and extent of that is life is suffering until you decide how to suffer. Going into someone, you know, we'll use a Gandhi quote, be the change you want to see in the world. Gandhi came up with that after hating who he was. He beat his wife. He mutilated himself. He attempted suicide on multiple occasions and eventually turned everything around to become this quote unquote great, you know, thought leader all over the idea that he learned to better understand the whys of the world around him or to take it one step further to have a better defined set of answers to the whys around him. In fact, those individuals who have a, a playbook, if you will, of the definitions to their why questions or the answers to their why questions are those who we typically define as spiritual leaders. A priest or a pastor, they have a spiritual book in which gives them their why questions. They need to study that in order to be succinct with it, to, to be able to reference it. That doesn't often mean understand it though. And this is back to my soapbox on why you should never let someone tell you what you must believe in or what faith you must practice because the understanding of that is subject to depression. And when I talked about mental health and self-awareness in the beginning of this podcast, and specifically in episode 15, when I really define what I believe depression to be, depression is the way in which you see the world around you. Let's take that a step further now to kind of wrap this episode up, because I know I'm long-winded. Depression is the cognitive understanding that allows us the intuition or the inklings of spirituality. And because it is uniquely who you are in my definition, because it is uniquely how you see the world, your fingerprint of spiritualism, in my personal and humble opinion, it's yours. It's no one else's. It can't, in fact, be anyone else's in any way, shape or form, 
because it is uniquely who you are. Not to say we can't have commonalities and agree on different things, but it's your imprint almost. I would hazard now a newer, more updated definition that not only is depression the state of mental health in which you see the world, it is intrinsically your mental health. It's also your spiritual fingerprint. Your definition is what defines your why questions and answers. And if you don't understand what that looks like in the human physical form, there's no possible way you'd have any rational reason of knowing what that looks like in the spiritual, etheric, or other form, the other health bodies or other health body. And thus, there's a massive disconnect that must be reconciled in order for us to better have an understanding of who we are, how we interact, not only ourselves, but others. And the practice of understanding and looking at intuition may give us a better understanding of that. So I challenge you at the end of this episode to look at in the upcoming week or month or however long you want to take for it to look at what are the repetitive things around you that maybe you aren't paying attention to and what could they mean? Maybe start asking some why questions of like, why do I keep, why do I keep finding myself in this situation? Why do I keep seeing those numbers or why do I keep having that dream? Or why does this person keep acting this way around me? Why do I keep feeling this way when I do this? Why do I keep driving this way to work? Things like that. To look at the repetition, to look at the repetitive actions and maybe try to gain some understanding of the universe outside of your normality. And there might be nothing there. The reason you drive that way to work every day, just because it's efficient and it saves on gas. That's fine. It doesn't need to be a, there doesn't always need to be a bigger answer or a bigger reason to something. Doesn't mean we can't gain something from the exploration of it. I think part of my, my personal journeys and observations here come from a want of an, a bigger answer. Part of me joining the Freemasons, which I am no longer a part of because they didn't really have anything for me. And I don't necessarily agree with the organization at a fundamental level. Part of that was I've always been seeking answers. I've been seeking these big, big answers to these big, big questions. And in doing so, I found that that's not exactly where you need to look. Often there's been answers right in front of me that I just didn't pay attention to because I thought they were small and meaningless. And the most small and meaningless thing actually is, in fact, partly the answer to some of the very big, big questions. This is the idea of as above, so below. To give you a real world example of that, something I have on the archive that I'm actually, well, I'm, I'm I feel very strongly about it, I'll put it that way, is save the bees. 
save the bees. Bees have great intuition, actually. Bees are a very intuitive creature. But without the bees, we can't have things get pollinated and then they can't grow and bloom. And They're natural pollinators and they do all sorts of great things for the world. So save the bees. Save the bees and be more intuitive, right? That's That would be a great thing to do, but that's just a small example. But it's a small example of a great understanding. Look at someone like Paul Stamets, also in the archive. You can look at some of his work. Paul Stamets is probably the foremost understanding individual on mushrooms, but not just mushrooms, the mycelium network and what that does for the entire world. Mushrooms are the great recyclers. They are the great destroyers, which bring everything back to chaos, infinite possibility. And without them, well, we'd be screwed. Just like without the bees, we'd be screwed. This world, bad things would happen. So when you start to understand that at an intuitive position, and no, I'm not amazing at this. I'm not some master or anything like that. In fact, another small side tangent here as I'm finishing up to better understand this point as well. I've been face to face with grandmasters in martial arts. I've, I've touched hands with them. I've, I've trained with them. I've experienced what it is to, I guess, be them in some cases. I've, I've felt it. It's part of intuition to, to feel that. I've never met one who was the best. The best at something, sure. Met a few of those. Most of them, I think, are the best at faking it. And it's not to slight them in any way. They're highly adaptive and they're skilled at watching and seeing and feeling and being intuitive in the sense of a martial practice. It just comes, it, at that stage, it just comes naturally to them. It is an instinct or intuitive practice. But at the same time, they always have one thing in common. They have what's known as a white belt mind or the learner's mind. And this is the practice of understanding that even though one might be a grandmaster or a master or at the higher echelon of something, it does not make them better than someone else, nor does it make them the best at something. In fact, they understand there's always something to be learned or gleaned or understood from those of the lesser. Teaching humbles one to the idea that the individual who doesn't understand something is the one most likely to have the biggest breakthrough, to come up with the biggest new invention of that system because they will create their own understanding from the infinite possibility that is chaos, they will give creation, which will allow for a new ordering that will eventually destroy previous understandings. So it's not often that we have to look for these giant answers. Gods. 
Caprice. Maybe you can look at Congregation. Maybe you can look at Faith. Personal Repetitive Endeavor. Maybe you can look at the small intuitive sense and maybe that will lead to the greatest understanding. Because that's the idea of intuition. The power or faculty of attaining to direct knowledge or cognition without evident rational thought and inference. To understand that the necessity of the bees or the loss of the bees leads to the destruction of, well, farming, crops in general, plants. The immediate apprehension or immediate apprehension or cognition, knowledge or conviction gained by intuition. This is a muscle we must start flexing. We must start looking at what intuition is. Because I think it's as important as saving the bees. I think the understanding of our spiritual sense will lead us down a path that's far greater than what we're trying to accomplish today. And no, I'm not here to be the one saying, you know, let's all hold hands and get along and kumbaya motherfuckers. No. What I'm trying to say is without representation of the spiritual practices known as the understanding of intuition being the very, again, from this podcast perspective, the beginning of that understanding of spirituality is intuition without at least looking at that. We're only going to repeat the cycle we're in now. And in my, my opinion, that intuition must involve the understanding that organization of intuition is corruption, is coercion. And spirituality is a part of depression. And thus it is the unique fingerprint, and unique even spiritual fingerprint of someone is their depression. It's their understanding. It gets to be theirs. It does not have to agree to anyone else ever. There will be commonality though. There is always commonality. The universe provides commonality as a balance to individuality. We don't get to decide what that balance is, though. We only get to work inside of it. And that has to do with listening to one's intuition. So I think that's important. Not just as a societal whole to an individual. Because I can't change society. I'm not really trying to change society. In fact, if I had to really come to grasp with what I feel almost as an intuition of spiritual nature, humanity has failed miserably. I would argue almost irrevocably at this point, we have failed. What we do to ourselves, to others, to the world, the greed, the corruption, 
we are hell bent on destroying ourselves. And all we do is push aside the intuition towards that end. We just constantly push away that feeling we have. That intuition of like, should we really be doing this? Is this really the right answer? Is this really, is this really the right thing to do? We just push that away and we push it away and we push it away. And it just leads to more and more suffering, more and more pain and destruction. And I'm not saying those things will ever go away. But they will certainly come to fruition if that's all we continue to do. We will certainly destroy this planet and civilization of humanity. And maybe that's what we're supposed to do. Maybe that's the right action. Maybe that's what's supposed to happen. I don't know. That's up for every individual to decide. I've started to look at everything from the perspective of there's these three health bodies. One of those is the physical form, the physical body. And that is a civilization in and of itself that all seem to work in correlation to each other. And in fact, when an outside invader comes in and goes, hey, I'm going to fuck everything up in here, the whole system comes together, the whole civilization comes together and goes, dude, knock it off, knock your shit off, knock it off. You can hang out, just stop breaking stuff. And that's how we get a whole gut bacteria biome of all sorts of different creatures just chilling out together, hanging out, doing their thing. That's just my perspective of it. And I don't expect you to have the same. I think that right there is an important factor of all of this. I will never expect someone to have the same beliefs I do, the same faith I have, because it's fucking prosperous preposterous to do so. I can't even define my own. I've published now 37 episodes of a podcast trying to figure this out. And I'm still not there yet. We're talking over 40 hours of content that has to do with hundreds of hours of thinking and contemplation and trying to understand. And I can't even define to you what mine is in a cognitive sense to help you understand how I think. I've simply just come up with some topics to discuss that maybe we can all maybe get something out of. So that's where I'm at. And I'll digress again, as I usually do. Back to the main point. Intuition. I believe to be the attention to the intentions of the other of universal balance, whatever that form takes on to you. So to get back to where I started this tangent, I challenge you to look at in the coming days, weeks, months, whatever patterns and representations and where you're getting your definitions of why answers. And if those definitions are yours or someone else's. And if there's someone else's, that might not be wrong. If you got them from your family, if it's a, you know, a, a community thing that you have, or just a strong representation that you have with you, you know, you and yours. But I do challenge that to modifying them, to make them yours and your own. And a good place to start is to see if they hurt others or hurt yourself. Cause that's not exactly a normal basis of situation. Although in the past I might've disagreed with that. 
but to look at those, to look at, you know, those, those wide definition pieces to look at the feelings you get that you just kind of shake off. You know, are you getting the goosebump effect when you talk about certain things or hear certain things? Are you repetitively hearing certain things that give you pause to give you a step back to look at your routines and to look at, in fact, to look at all of the things I've talked about on this podcast in the past. Language, relationships, beliefs, reality, choice, change. Those are really good subjects to look at as far as an intuitive nature comes from. That gut feeling idea, that parental instinct idea, the just that feeling we get almost, quote unquote, when we make choices. And what the change is that is occurring with those feelings. Because that could be twofold in that sense. We could, you know, if, if you're making gut feeling choices, you're making intuitive sense in choices, and what you would define as positive change and outcomes coming from it, then look deeper at what that intuitive feeling is because it'll, it'll continue to help you make those better choices. Vice versa, if you feel like you're intuitively making these choices and not great things are happening as an outcome by your definition, then maybe it's a time to look at like, am I really being intuitive or am I shying away or really not paying attention to another side of this that I, I could be. That's that order intuition side of like, oh, maybe I'm only paying attention to the negative side and thus I'm making these negative choices thinking that is intuitive, but it's not really actually intuitive. What it is is it's patterned cognizant recognition of the negative and thus I gravitate towards it. So those are just some things to contemplate. I'll contemplate some more. I'm sure I'll come up with another topic to talk about. But right now I'm stuck on this intuition thing, at least for this week until I have to publish another one of these. But, you know, I think if, if we can get this intuition thing down personally, at a personal level, if you can get this intuition thing down, I believe there's a wide world in which you can apply it to. And in my own personal life, figuring out how to listen to my intuition has made some of the greatest changes occur that ultimately have led to the most balance. And no, I will not give them connotation, negative or not, because that's the world in which I live in. But they've been the catalyst. This understanding of intuition has been the catalyst for the incorporation of the greatest amount of balance I've been able to experience in this life so far. And every time I take a step further down the realm of, of studying and understanding my own intuition, I get to a, a more balanced place. And ultimately, yes, I would have to say it feels good. It feels better. It feels more right, I think, is the choice. More content, more right is the choice of words I would put on that. So please look into your own intuition. Check out the archive, tamingindresses.com, for some of the uh, things I mentioned on this episode. Um, 
Masamaru Amoto. There we go. Took me a second. Um, for the stuff on water, uh, Ken Wheeler, uh, I believe it's, um, I can't remember his YouTube channel. I apologize, but it's on the archive. Um, Alan Watts gives some great speeches as far as the Zen side of things. Um, Thomas Hoover's the Zen experience. Remember Zen by philosophical nature is the extent or the beginnings of Zen, I should say in almost all spiritual practices, in my personal opinion is the extent of better trying to understand one's intuition. Those are the practices in which they go on about. So check out the archive, check those things out, check out whatever it is that makes you feel more connected to your intuitive side, go paint something, go read something, go hang out in the park. Those types of things I believe are the actions in which we can take to better understand that intuition. And I think I'll get into that in another episode as well. Maybe talk about instincts in that sense. So take care and I'll see you on the next one. Thanks for listening. Come check us out at taminghindrances.com for show notes, links, resources, and more. Also, don't forget to subscribe to the show via iTunes, Stitcher, RSS, or your preferred platform. If you leave us a spiffy review, we might just mention it on the show. But go be awesome. And just remember to breathe.